Welcome back, EMIGCAST listeners. I'm Megan Sapensky, a third-year medical student here at OHSU. And I'm Molly Marr, an MD-PhD student at OHSU. We have a great episode for you today about patient satisfaction in the emergency department. We're here with Dr. Joshua Russell. He is an EM physician who trained at OHSU and has pursued a diverse non-clinical career as an entrepreneur, medical administrator, and educator. He currently practices clinically in Vancouver, Washington, and serves as the leader for provider education at a local urgent care organization. Thank you for coming in. Of course. To start, what are your thoughts about patient satisfaction surveys? Sure. Yeah, I think patient satisfaction surveys is one of the most contentious topics when you discuss it with practicing physicians. And I would say that my position on it has changed significantly since I finished training. And I think that the natural response from many physicians, certainly those that are late in their career and and many that are in training, is that you're gaining all this knowledge or that you have this knowledge because you've been in practice for a long time. And why is it important or why should I capitulate to what a patient wants me to do. I know what's best, so I should just do what's best. And I was of that mindset for a while, but then I just realized that this is not the business that we're in. We're not in the business of telling people what to do because in general, people don't receive orders well. So what I realized is in caring about patient satisfaction is that in the process, you also learn how to be better at your job. When you do say patient satisfaction, a lot of other physicians look on a scoff. Where do you think those feelings come from? So like I said before, the process of going through medical training and then having many years of clinical experience, you definitely develop an expertise. When you develop this incredibly powerful tool that has amazing clinical intuition, you usually know what's right and what's not right to do for patients. It feels insulting in some ways, and I can certainly understand that, where you're being told, even though I have all this expertise, My job is not to do what I know is right, but to do what the patient thinks that they need. And I think that that's the reason why I get away from the term patient satisfaction and talk more about patient experience, because patient satisfaction implies right or wrong that you're going to do what the patient wants, wants you to do. And I certainly am not advocating for that. And I think it's an interesting tangentially related subject is that the reason why there's certain studies that show that higher patient satisfaction is correlated with worse outcomes and the the opponents of patient satisfaction movement, if you want to call it that, uh, latch on to those studies is because in, in the absence of using good clinical judgment and just trying to do what the patient wants, of course, there are going to be worse outcomes because the patients don't often know what's best for them. And generally, a lot of times, the more just from my personal experience, the more insistent a patient is on a specific test or treatment, the less appropriate it is for them. So if you take those patients who are likely going to be the most satisfied in the moment and then see where they are compared to patients who are less satisfied three months, six months later, whatever the case may be, it's not surprising that they may have worse outcomes. But there are also studies to show that patients who have better satisfaction uh, have better outcomes. So, so how do you reconcile this difference? I think that it comes from the fact that when patient is demanding something, you can take two approaches. One is the expedient approach, which is, okay, this person wants something, they have dug their heels in, they need a CT of their head, they need antibiotic for their viral URI. The easy and expedient thing is to give them what they want, and they will leave, and they'll probably give you a good satisfaction score, especially because many of these things have no immediate adverse outcome or consequence. So they get the survey usually several days or a week after their visit. And at that point, they're like, I got what I wanted. So good doctor. 
But if you follow them out long-term, they're probably going to overall do worse if you take thousands and thousands of patients. But there's also a group of physicians who say, okay, this patient doesn't understand what's going on with them and doesn't understand what they need. And they'll do the non-expedient thing, but the right thing, which is to sit down with the patient and hear them, take into account that they have this expectation and that you need to address why they have this expectation. Is it that they're afraid they want have cancer? Do they have a family member who died from an intracerebral hemorrhage and uh, they think that they, their headache represents, you know, a brain bleed? What is it? Where does it come from? And, you know, there's an expression that I like that was uh, one of the emergency physicians that trained me uh, when I was in medical school named Greg Henry uses, and that's nobody cares what you think until they think you care. And if you don't take the time to listen to what they have to say, and we can talk about ways that people can, you can express care and people can believe that you're a caring and concerned person rather than just trying to do what they want. But if you don't make those efforts to make sure that they feel heard and that you care, then they don't care what you think and they don't care what you say. So that takes time, though. That doesn't take a ton of time if you use some shortcuts or hacks, as people like to call them sometimes. <laughs> but, um, but if you do take the time to do that, then the patient will leave feeling better just by virtue of a positive interaction with the clinician, and they will leave with the right test or therapy based on your actual expertise coming to play in the situation. Was there a particular experience that led you to change your mind? Sure. Uh, so I would say that there was not one instance where I'm like, this is, I'm, I'm clearly misguided. But I think it was just a building sense of being bothered by conflict and finding that when I don't see eye to eye with patients or that there is not a good ex experience, both of the patient and the, the physician walk away feeling that it was a waste of time, waste of energy, and that's not meaningful to do that. And then more globally, I think communication, as I've proceeded in my career, I've realized is the most important skill that you can have that's diversely applicable. So it's, in my mind, very short-sighted and overly specific for physicians to either care or not care about patient satisfaction or patient experience. So for example, there is a common instrument called the Press-Ganey survey, and that's used that is the most widely used survey instrument for evaluating patient satisfaction from emergency departments. And there are programs that are geared towards improving Press-Ganey scores specifically. It's like, this will get your Press-Ganey scores from X to, to Z. And to do that is, it is done in the same way that MCAT review classes or board review classes teach to the test. It's the Press-Ganey survey is an open book test. We know what it asks about, did the doctor seem concerned about your comfort? Did the doctor seem concerned about your privacy? And a host of other uh, questions. And if you teach the test, you could very easily come in saying, I'm going to specifically say to this patient, I'm going to close the curtain for your privacy. Let me, you know, is, let me know if I'm doing everything I can for your comfort, those kind of things. And that's relatively shallow approach to the possibilities that you can arrive at by caring about patient experience. Because if you delve into the true essence of how do I how do I communicate effectively with this patient? It turns out that patients are people and everybody else in the world that you interact with is also a person. So I think that it, we're missing a, a tremendous opportunity that's being presented to us on a silver platter by patient experience and patient satisfaction now becoming a priority of many hospital administrators. And that is how do we 
learn to be effective communicators because if you can effectively influence and persuade patients to your way of thinking then that skill set will translate to talking to consultants and persuading them to do what you need them to do for your patients it will translate to dealing with nurses it'll translate to dealing with your family and friends and and any other professional avenues so i think you can resist patient satisfaction as much as you want but at the end of the day it is a snowball rolling downhill. It's not becoming smaller. It's becoming larger part of our lives. And if you want to resist it, then you're going to have a frustrating time every time you go to work because it's going to be continuously thrust upon physicians. There was always the potential that press gaining and patient satisfaction scores could impact reimbursements and funding. Mm -hmm. Is that something that is true here as well? or I will say it varies on the job, but increasingly so. There's some component of reimbursement that's that's based on your, your press gainy scores. And again, this is the, the tide of medicine. You're not going to be able to fight the ocean. And I think that acquiescing to that as the reality of the situation sooner than later is going to minimize your frustration because trying to fight it is a waste of energy at this point, I think, from it, for any individual. You can speak out against it in broad terms if you're strongly opposed to it. I, there's certainly people that have that opinion. I am of the persuasion, again, like I said, that this is an incredible opportunity for you to focus on your communication skills. At the end of the day, you want to be able to take care of patients. You want to feel like your work is doing good and you want to feel like your job is meaningful. And fighting patient satisfaction surveys and selectively using the studies that say that it's associated with bad outcomes and ignoring the ones that say that it's associated with better outcomes is ultimately going to lead to a lot of conflict with the people who keep the lights on in the hospital. And it's going to lead to conflict with patients that's avoidable if you, rather than looking at it as me versus them, as an opportunity to be a better communicator and get them to trust you so that they ultimately have a better therapeutic experience. That's going to be, at the end of the day, what makes your job sustainable. Tell us more about what these surveys are and how they work. It's basically, like I said, they're, they're, it's an open book test. So it refers to the physician's concern for your level of comfort, the physician's explaining of medical jargon terminology adequately, concerns about privacy. Any of the, the listeners can just Google Prescani survey mm -hmm. and list, list the questions. Another one that's starting to be used more commonly is the NPS survey or net promoter score, which is used um, in more, I would say, urgent cares and freestanding ERs. It's a shorter survey, so it doesn't suffer from the same uh, responder bias that Prescani suffers. NPS is two questions on a scale from 1 to 10. How likely are you to recommend our clinic, our ER, whatever, to a friend or family member. And then second is how likely are you to recommend a uh, the provider or the physician who saw you to a friend or family member. So that is obviously much easier to answer. And in this era of so much spam, a lot of people who have middle of the road experiences or even have positive experiences, but don't feel compelled to share that will not respond to Prescani because it's a lot of questions. And so you tend to get this responder bias where only the disgruntled patients are filling it out. And it doesn't really give you an accurate reflection of how well you're performing. There are other, as long as we're talking about a couple of their shortcomings of Prescani, uh, 
Number two, what I would say is that the, it doesn't apply to admitted patients. So patients that get admitted to the hospital do not receive a Press-Ganey survey. It doesn't re- uh, apply to patients with mental health issues uh, or that are there for substance abuse issues. So you're getting a small subsegment of actually the patients you're caring for. So just use it as a global indicator of how well you're caring for patients or delivering care that is patient-centered is is flawed. You mentioned that many people are excluded from Prescani. How do we get feedback from them? So the the rationale for not giving these surveys to people with mental health issues and substance abuse comes from a place of feeling that they're opinions are going to be driven by things that are not necessarily what would drive the opinions of people that are rational. And um, for better or worse, there's, there's just a heterogeneous population. They might be making decisions on the survey that are driven by their current state of intoxication or their foggy memory because they don't really recall what happened to them in the emergency department. Um, they may have impaired reality testing. And so, you know, asking somebody who's actively psychotic, like how to how to get somewhere is probably not the best source of information. I don't think that their opinions should be disregarded, but they have to be evaluated with different instruments. And how you do that is going to depend on what their specific exclusion criterion is, right? If it's if it's that they are an alcoholic or have uh, meth amphetamine dependence or whatever the case may be, it's probably going to be a different instrument. And there's not yet, to my knowledge, instruments that can evaluate these people's experience in in a way that's germane to each of their individual situations. But I think that the taking a step back and just saying, by focusing on patient experience globally rather than the survey itself, you can let the administrators do the administrating and you'll just do well at the survey because you're doing well at caring about what patients' experiences are. And it's actually an incredible opportunity in the emergency department because these people that are homeless and have uh, addiction, dependence, um, you know, coming to us from jail, they get treated like crap by everybody else in the entire world. This is the one chance for them to receive some respect in this life. And that's an incredible privilege is you can treat them well and, um, not dismiss them, and that's gonna that's gonna be meaningful to them, and you make a difference in their day. At least I believe you do. I haven't ever gotten a survey back from any yeah. of them, but <laughs> they 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 leave usually appreciating what I've said to them and that I've treated them with respect. And it's an opportunity to do something for these people that no one else is doing. And it does something too. So if you're treating these people like they're criminals, like they're just out to get something from you, and changes you as well because you're you're making a choice to treat these people in this way and it's buying into a jaded view of humanity and a jaded view of the world and there's certainly no shortage of data that will let you believe that about the world as you're working in the emergency department but that's a terrible way to go through life is thinking that the world is a horrible nasty place full of liars thieves and rapists there's certainly those that element of humanity, but in most of these people that you can find something good or at least find a way that you can um, have a meaningful human connection, even if the person is not a uh, upstanding citizen. That's great advice. Thanks for sharing with us. Sure. We talked a lot about the physician's impact on scores. What other factors contribute? 
the experience doesn't start when they see the doctor. The experience starts when they often talk yeah. to a registration person mm-hmm. or the nurse at triage. So that's definitely something as probably less important as a medical student. But as you go forward in your career, if you're finding that your institution or your personal satisfaction scores are low, look at what else is influencing that. And you bring up a really great point that it's it's not you who's making that first impression of the overall experience. The experience doesn't, I mean, the experience starts when they decide to seek care and it may be influenced by the paramedics. It may be influenced by the traffic or the parking situation, honestly. So I think thinking about it as experience, again, rather than satisfaction, takes into consideration what globally is involved in an experience. Your experience of going to the last movie you went to wasn't just the movie itself. It was was a seat comfortable? Was the theater floor sticky? Those kind of things matter to your overall impression. And while there's some tolerance for like a little bit of like, you know, disorder in the emergency department, I think having a, you know, blood stains or stool or vomit on the floor, even in anywhere visible is going to shape that experience in a not insignificant way. And because people are not taking the time to like, sit down and meditate and then come to the survey and be like, okay, after my, you know, 10 minute mindfulness exercise, these are my answers. They're just doing it, whatever comes to mind on the top of their head. So that is the reality of the situation. So if you want to impact a patient experience, it doesn't end and by any means with your interaction with the patient. And there's certain things that are within your control and without and outside of your control. But I would encourage any interactions that, um, focus on you alone being the driver of patient experience. Certainly, it is the most impactful thing, the interaction with the clinician. That's like in the bookend model, there's the beginning and the end, and then there's the climax. And the climax is the interaction, or it should be, with, with the physician. And so you can't ignore that that is important, but there's a lot of other things that can be impactful too. So if if you're ever being hounded that you're the sole source of a bad patient experience, I would like everyone to point out to any administrator if you if there's, you know, broken, obviously broken equipment that's in plain sight, um, if there's a rude triage nurse, if there's a foul odor to the waiting room, all these things make a big difference and frankly are easier to fix than, than physician behavior, especially individual physician behavior, because most ERs are staffed by, you know, a lot of doctors. You talk about how communication is one of the most important skills that physicians can develop to improve patient experience. How does effective communication work in a busy emergency department? This is the biggest thing that you do in emergency medicine. A lot of people go into emergency medicine because they love the idea of massive resuscitations and crash procedures to to save people's lives. If that is the reason you're going to emergency medicine, then you're going to burn out quickly because that is the vanishing minority of patients that need an emergent surgical airway, for example. But there are a ton of patients every day that need maybe not emergency treatment, but they need someone to listen to them and reassure them. They may have a chronic problem and not understand it. And taking the time to, to, to interact with these people, make them feel heard and let them know what would be best for them in a way that's not insulting them or making them feel like they're wasting your time is going to actually sustain you and give you meaning in your career because if you don't if you just treat those patients as fillers between the, the resuscitations then you're going to find that most of your time you're spending doing things you 
quote unquote hate. But if you embrace this as the reality of our, your job and learn to the you know communication strategies to to make yourself effective at that, then you will have less conflict. You'll be more effective with these people and. Those are very important for job satisfaction is, you know, you, you leave after having a positive interaction, the people go on and you know that you've made an impact. Cognitive psychology shows that if you don't use something as your day in and day out practice, you won't use it and you'll lose it, excuse me. So if you're not using these strategies to minimize power differentials, to mm -hmm. make patients feel like you're concerned and that you care about them, they're being heard. If you're not using those on a regular basis then they're certainly going to atrophy because at the end of the day, it really is a very cognitively demanding thing to go through an emergency department shift. And as you spend your cognitive energy or sometimes called willpower, you stop behaving in conscious ways and start behaving in habitual ways. And so that's why it's so important to start with good habits because it's much easier to much easier to, to develop a good habit than it is to change a bad habit. And once you make something a habit, the beautiful thing is it doesn't take any willpower. So you may find initially that, oh, I have to sit down and I have to smile and I have to not talk for 30 seconds and, you know, wear a white coat. These kind of things I think are impactful. But then once a period of time goes by, as they say, it's average about two months worth of time, a, a behavior becomes a habit and then it no longer takes willpower. You just do it automatically and you can then save your willpower for the hard parts of the job, which are, you know, keeping straight the 12 different patients that you're managing and making sure that you're not missing anything serious or life-threatening. So you mentioned a couple of ways that we can like improve the patient experience. What are some of the other hacks that you know <laughs> of? So I think Beginning with the principle of satisfaction, I think of it in terms of an equation. And starting from that, I think you can get to the, the hacks relatively easily. But the equation for satisfaction is outcome minus expectations. So it's a very basic equation. So we've all done arithmetic. And yeah. you can imagine <laughs> when the outcome term is high, then expectations can be high and there still can be a positive outcome. But a lot of times the outcome, especially for people with chronic problems or problems that don't have a true emergency diagnosis or treatment associated with them, it doesn't matter what you do. The outcome is probably not going to change in the immediate sense. So really managing expectations is the crux of it. And the, the ways that you can do that are by getting to what their expectations are. And a lot of times there's discussion about what the what the test is that I need or what the treatment is that I need. So you have to dissect that a little bit further and you have, need to make it about rather than their um, specific request, what is the motivation behind that? And, and trying to parse it out may take a few questions. It's not something that you're going to naturally be good at, but giving up and throwing your hands up is never going to teach you those skills. So while you're a student, for sure, in the emergency department, and you're seeing, you know, one patient every hour or two, that's the time to really focus on how do I get to what this patient is actually here for? Because most of the time, it's fear driven. And getting to what that fear is, then you can start showing we're on the same team, you know, I want what's right for you. But a CT scan is not going to rule out that you have a brain tumor, for example, and or an antibiotic is not going to help you feel better for your cough, and you're not going to die of this. You're not going to get better any faster. So managing expectations is the is the overarching principle. But in terms of hacks, the 
specifically, I think that there are a few things that you can do in your practice that will give you the, a vast amount of results. You may have heard of the 80-20 principle. That means that 20% of the interventions, and sometimes it's the 90-10 principle, but 20 or 10% of your, your efforts can get you 80 or 90% of the results. And then the additional stuff that you do will get you smaller incremental gains. So some of the major things is sitting down when you're talking to a patient. There's been studies showing that if you're standing, then patients perceive you're there actually a shorter period of time than you are. And if you're sitting, they perceive you're there a longer period of time. And one of the most precious commodities in life, and certainly during a shift in the emergency department, is your time. So you want patients to feel they're getting more of your time than they're actually getting. And you certainly don't want them to perceive that they're getting less because they're not even getting that much most of the time. And you may have to be pulled out of the room. So to make a habit of sitting down every patient encounter is so important. If there's not a stool, go get a stool. If uh, the patient uh, has a loved one that's sitting, don't ask them to stand up, go get a stool and, and sit down and talk to the patient. Yeah. yeah. Um, introducing yourself, shaking every person's hands, acknowledging every person in the room because the patient is the one you're treating, but oftentimes the patient is not the one who is driving the interaction. And you don't necessarily know that from, from the moment go, but if there's a man, for example, with chest pain and his wife is the one who prompted him to go to the emergency department, which happens every day. It's the reason why I say it. it's the reason why married men live longer. Uh, but the reason why it's so important to acknowledge the wife in that interaction is because if she's not happy with this, then there's there's basically in her mind, no, why did we come to the emergency department? I didn't get my my concern answered. And the guy is only there to, to make his wife happy. That's just one example. But there's many other examples. Uh, also with pediatrics, you have to keep in mind that you know, it's treating the parent more than treating the patient a lot of the times. So I think it's it's good to read books about influence and and uh, persuasion and, and social psychology of getting people to, to do what you want, not in a manipulative way, but out of good intention. And uh, some books that I have found incredibly impactful are ones you probably heard of, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I can't emphasize enough as an excellent primer in basic hacks and and they were it was written in the 1920s or 30s at least the first edition so i don't believe that they were called hacks then but <laughs> um, and uh, secondly is a book by robert cialdini called influence he was a, a clinical sorry he was a, a research psychologist that studied the the principles of what influences people and i actually have a mnemonic in my mind that i run through when i'm at an impasse with people is what are the the principles of influence that i can can exert in this interaction. You want me to go through that yeah, mnemonic? Yeah, definitely. Okay. The mnemonic is class R, the word class, C-L-A-S-S, and the letter R. And the, the each of those letters stands for one of the influence principles. So it begins with consistency. Uh, second is liking. Third is authority. Fourth is social proof. Fifth is scarcity. And sixth is reciprocity. So I'll unpack each of those um, but uh, the first being consistency is that people like to behave or feel compelled to behave in ways that are consistent with things that they previously said or what their values are. And I would say I would don't use this one a ton, but I get people to say that their motivation is through questioning. They want to get better usually or they want to find out they don't have cancer. And once that I find 
that I've gotten them to verbally commit to what they want, then I can latch onto that and frame what I'm wanting to do for them in terms of what they've said they wanted. So you're here for a good reason. You're worried about cancer. You were asking for a CT scan, and that's just not going to answer that question. And it's a lot of radiation expense. So because you're so concerned about cancer, let's talk about the ways that you can actually screen, be screened effectively for cancer. If it's colorectal cancer, then it's, you know, get a colonoscopy. If it's breast cancer, then, you know, mammogram or whatever the current recommendations are. I'll be honest, I'm not current with them. <laughs> but it's getting them to verbally commit to what they're there for, because then you can frame what you want to do for them in terms of what they can actually say, or have said that they have come in for. So that's consistency. Liking is what it, what it sounds like. Getting them to like you is important. So things that you can do that make that an easier process is smile, call them by their name. If they have loved ones with them, shake every person's hand, address their loved ones. If they have a kid that's playing with a toy, you know, talk about how the child seems smart and they seem like they're doing things that are impressive for their age. All these kind of things are not disingenuous, but it's trying to engender trust because they you, you're just meeting them and they're just meeting you. And people are inherently skeptical of people, especially when they're very afraid for their life, that they're not necessarily going to do what they need them to do. The other thing is look the part. So, um, and I'll talk about this as it pertains to authority, but uh, wearing a white coat is important. Um, you'll be happy when you have a longer white coat that is probably more impactful, but people do respond to a white coat. Um, taking time to make sure that your hygiene is good, your hair is put up, uh, in a way that looks like you're a professional because there's something called the halo effect. Is this something that you guys have ever heard of? The halo effect is a really phenomenal uh, psychological thing that people do not even, it's it's subconscious, but people ascribe positive characteristics to people that look presentable and look good for lack of a more precise term. And so if you take somebody who's disheveled versus somebody who's well put together and ask which of these people is smarter, people on surveys say the person who's better put together is smarter. So if you want people to trust you, you need to not have wrinkled scrubs. You need to, you know, not have somewhere between beard and not beard, um, these kind of things, because that is going to engender trust and they're going to think you're a better doctor, even though you've done nothing to prove that other than looking the part. A stands for authority. I use the term external indicators of credibility. And the most symbolic one that we have that a lot of ER docs don't love to wear is the white coat. And that's something that has been studied extensively. And it's clear that patients ascribe greater medical expertise to physicians that wear white coats than physicians who don't. This is a subconscious thing, as, a, as many of these psychological phenomena are, but you have such a short period of time to win their trust. And if they think that you have authority, then they're much more likely to go with what your recommendations are. And it's clear that the many of the treatments that we prescribe, or even just the value of the therapeutic interaction is placebo effect. And patients are much more likely to have a placebo effect, which actually should be the goal because there's no side effects to placebo, is for patients to to believe that they can trust you because then they'll walk away and whatever treatment you prescribe, there's no therapy that's 100% effective for any condition. But the efficacy of any therapy, if it's prescribed by a doctor that the patient trusts, is higher. 
So if your end goal is to have better outcomes for your patients, which I'm hoping is the case for most physicians, then it's time to say, okay, do I care more about the white coat being kind of cumbersome and clunky and uncomfortable, too hot, all the things that I hear, or do I care more about my patient's outcome? Um, and there are a lot of different styles of white coat out there. I'll argue you could probably find one that will fit your you know, size and comfort level more. Um, but that's the most obvious external credibility indicator. Um, introducing, I personally feel like it's important to introduce yourself as doctor when that is appropriate. And some physicians feel that it's better to use the first name. It's it's debated, but I think that it comes from the position of wanting these people who have just met you to understand that you have this training and this authority to be able to make judgments about what they need and what they don't need. Well, I'm disappointed that I'm going to have to wash my white coat now. Yes, it is. It doesn't change that it's a fomite, so it's not. <laughs> yeah. Get, getting a couple of white coats is a good idea. Yeah. And I will say that the white coat is not something that you need to have on at every moment. I think it's important, and this is something you know that uh, I've, I've done coaching sessions on patient experience. So there are hacks that we could talk about literally for a whole day because I have a session that's a whole day long teaching these kind of principles to providers, but the um, the first impression is so critical to gaining trust, and there's a phenomenon called primacy and recency you may have heard of, and primacy means that uh, when people reflect on experience and they look at that, what, what, what was that emergency department visit about? What happened? And it was, it's marked by bookends. What was the first moment? What was the last moment? And then in the middle, what was the most poignant or impactful moment? And those are the three things that are most important to focus on if you want to be effective in getting a patient to remember a good experience is they're going to take away what was the first experience I had with this person? What was the last moment with this person? And when that when they told me what was wrong or what the test results were, how did they deliver it? And if you do those things well, then a lot of stuff in the middle can be forgiven. And you probably, I mean, the primacy and recency, think back to like last time you saw a movie or a stand-up comedian. It's like, it's easy to remember the opening bit and the closing bit, but like there's a lot of stuff in the middle that just doesn't stick in your mind. And that's just kind of one of the nuances of how our, our memories function. But these, they're getting these surveys after the fact. So you want, if you want just to focus on good surveys, those are the important moments to focus on. But if you also want to focus on, you know, the placebo effect is going to be influenced by what what is my enduring impression of this visit and the placebo effect is going to be driven by is this enduring memory of that visit good or bad and the goodness or badness is defined by those important moments so i would say wear the white coat certainly when you first meet the the patient if you need to take it off certainly take it off for procedures or any time that's at risk of getting contaminated if you're getting overheated it's not a big deal to take it off and put it back on but those, those, that first moment, sitting down, smiling, introducing yourself, addressing the patient by name, making sure that first moment is a good one and a positive interaction is so crucial because it's really you're fighting an uphill battle if that doesn't go well. There's all this interesting research about the fact that women physicians aren't recognized. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how that impacts this too, if you're a woman, because mm-hmm. you, you could well, very well have patients be like, I never saw a doctor. That's a great question. So that is definitely something I can't speak to from personal experience, but I definitely have friends and colleagues who I've seen express their frustrations, certainly understandable frustrations about not being regarded and appreciated as the physician and expert that they are. And I will say that my comments about 
wearing a white coat are even more emphasized when I'm coaching female physicians and providers, because if you Google the term doctor, I don't know if I haven't done it in a while, but what comes up is a, can you guess? Probably a male physician in a white coat. And older too. Usually they're like Like, sort of mm -hmm. respectable, bearded, gray. (laughs) Right. And this is exactly the image. And that's the reason why that comes up is because we have a um, general cultural consensus of what a doctor looks like, quote unquote, looks like. So the less that you fit that role, if you have, if you're a man and you have, you know, a weird facial hair or pink hair or something like that, or if you're a woman, but you're not wearing a white coat, then there's a phenomenon called cultural dissonance that occurs in the patient's mind. And because many people are not aware of this, what it will manifest as, as distrust is that I came to see a doctor and you don't look like a doctor, therefore I don't trust you. So the more that you can look like a doctor, the more you can introduce yourself as doctor and have MD on your, or DO as the case may be, but have doctor on your white coat, the more that it will be cueing these patients to regard you as doctor. And so I think that looking the part will minimize cognitive dissonance and engender more trust. I want to go back because I didn't finish the acronym. Oh, yeah, and the SS and the R. SS and yeah, the R, right. right. We <laughs> talked about consistency, liking, and authority. The, mm-hmm. the two S's, uh, the first is scarcity. So people respond well to things that they feel are scarce. Things that are in abundance are not coveted. Things that people feel are scarce are felt to be more desirable. And this is the whole rationale for the psychology that is pervasive in life of the grass is greener. Mm-hmm. You, you have the grass that you're surrounded by, and then there's the grass on the other side of the fence. And that is enticing because there's you don't, ha- you don't have access to that, but you have access to this. So the way that I use that is to use facts that I allude to being secrets or or kind of clandestine information saying things like it's very few people know this but this antibiotic actually can cause very severe life-threatening diarrhea and that's not something that i use a ton but that's how scarcity principle can be used you could also use it to say you know this is a limited opportunity for you to to take advantage of X, Y, or Z if you need someone to kind of make a decision because there's a lot of times the patients can be indecisive. Social proof is a very powerful tool of influence. And the way that this plays out is that people tend to take cues from people that are like themselves or are surrounding them as to what to do. Like if you, the classic studies are like um, a person standing on the corner of the street looking up at the mm-hmm. sky. If it's one person, almost no one stops to look up. But if it's five people standing and looking up at the sky, almost everyone stops. We have something that is ingrained in our genes from evolution that we should take cues from people around us because that is the best way to survive when we were hunter-gatherers. And that is ingrained in us subconsciously every day. And that's the reason why we try to generally conform most people to the norms of the people around us. So if you're trying to persuade people, uh, I like to use story or anecdote because people respond much more to story or anecdote than than data. But I will create a story of a patient that's not totally fabricated, but as much as you can, use an anecdote and change the patient to be as much like the patient. So I could be like, I'm 
was taking care of this patient who was in her mid twenties last week who had, you know, very similar set of symptoms. And, you know, she got prescribed an antibiotic for her cough. And then she came back the next day and had this horrible allergic reaction. I just, you know, that, that happens not infrequently. And I would hate to see that happen to you. And people internally um, respond as that being more meaningful data to them to process than if you just say, 90% of the time, this is a viral infection and 15% of patients have some adverse reaction to an antibiotic. That doesn't give them much context and it doesn't influence them to, to see your line of thinking. Finally, reciprocity is, uh, speaking of uh, recency and primacy, so I put the reciprocity at the end because that is probably one of the easiest and most powerful tools. And that is, you see this reciprocity principle pl play out when... Um, Charity organizations will send you a free gift in the mail. People feel incredibly compelled to not be indebted to people. And so if you've done even a small gesture for somebody else, their strong and usually subconscious inclination is to try and level the the debt as soon as possible, as it were. So easy ways you can do this is bring a patient a pillow if you see that they're, they don't have a pillow on their bed. Bring them a blanket if they don't have a blanket. My favorite is to bring them a glass of water. Almost everyone is waiting for the doctor to be able to told that they're allowed to eat or drink. And as soon as I see them, they're often waiting hours and are parched. So if you just say, hey, it doesn't look like you need to keep your stomach empty anymore, probably not going to need to have surgery, want me to go get you a glass of water. Then you go physically get that water. It takes a minute and a half, but then that patient's immediately subconsciously indebted to you. You don't want to take advantage of that, but you want to use that to your advantage when you are trying to pick a treatment plan for the patient later and use that social capital that you've built with them, that trust for them to buy into your plan as the, the best best course of action. And I say all these things, not that you should use them maliciously, but that you should use them from the place of wanting to do the right thing for the patient. And I, I assume that most of the listeners went into medicine because they want to help people and they want to do the right thing for the patient. And getting the patient to trust you and allow you to do that thing that you think is right for them relies on them responding to your ability to persuade them. And all these principles can allow you to persuade them in a much more effective way. That's a great acronym. Thanks for sharing. Anything else you'd like to add as we finish up today? I think the, the main thing is that it's easier to make good habits than it is to change bad habits. So forming good habits is so crucial for the way that we interact with patients. It's so crucial for every aspect of our practice. So if you want to put in central lines the right way, learn and make a habit of doing every step in the process correctly. And the same thing is true for taking a history. If you want to miss anything, make it a habit of doing things in a systematic way. And if you want to make patients feel comfortable and trusted and heard so, so that the therapeutic interaction is as positive as possible, then make habits of these communication strategies because putting them off until you're a resident is going to be much harder because you're already have habits that you formed as a med student. Plus, there's going to be a lot more that's asked of you and it's going to be more still that's asked of you when you're in attending. So as a student, it's the best time, not only because it's easiest but also because you're not dealing with as much other distracting things that you're responsible for. Thanks so much for talking with us today. This has been an absolute delight. It's been fun. Thanks. So, yeah, thank you for coming in. Of course. Bye.